All right, everyone, welcome to Magnifying God. I'm your host, Adam Michael. Today, what we are going to be talking about is in a book called Prepare to Overcome. This book was written not too long ago, but prior to, the first section in this book was written in a workbook form. And I have that workbook right out in front of me. It's called Preparing the Saints, Preparing the Saints. And we have gone chapter by chapter. And just as a recap, if you have not listened to a couple of the chapters, please go back and listen. It's kind of a build-up process. Uh, we're trying to grow you through this book. Uh, we start out with the rebuilding of the walls, which is kind of knowing the, the Word of God, which is your protections, and staying in that Word. And the Word is the walls. You're to stay in the Word of God. You then have the kingdom of God, the king's domain, his reign. And then you have repentance, which is the turning away from sin, but also changing the way you think. Then you have the Holy Spirit, identity, who you are in Christ, the authority, the authority that we've been given because of where we're positioned now. You then have words, the power of our words, and how our words lead to blessings and curses. You have healing. And then finally, we're at chapter 10, spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare is something that uh, I didn't know much about, but I know that looking back at my life, I was going through quite a bit of it, and I didn't even realize it. So uh, to begin with, though, we're going to turn to chapter 10 of Preparing the Saints. And in this book, I'm staring at a picture that was uh, taken of, a chessboard. And in this chessboard, you've got some of these white pieces and some of these uh, black pieces in this picture. And the black pieces have actually fallen over, and a couple of the, the, the white ones have fallen over. But you've got one piece that is standing firm. And that is so important that we stand firm. We stand firm in Christ. We stand firm in his word. Uh, and that is all dealing with, yet again, that first chapter of rebuilding the walls. Now, in my life, in my life, I struggled with quite a bit. I struggled with depression and suicide. I struggled with addiction, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, whether it be women, um, or pornography, or anything like that. And I didn't really know why I had these in my life. And I didn't know why these were happening, or why these thoughts were happening, and why. And I was struggling so mightily with all of this. And then finally, I... I got to this understanding of it was all big spiritual warfare. And it occurred to me when this happened, and I realized that if you look at just the hierarchy of how this is, um, an unsaved man is under the authority of Satan, the father of lies, the prince of the air. But when we get saved, we get transported into the kingdom of God which is seated next to Jesus himself. And that means that we now are above the authority of Satan because God has given us his authority. With that being said, he, being the enemy, is now below us. And we are to tread on serpents and scorpions, which is all dealing with this idea of spiritual warfare. Now, now I've got my father, God, the creator of the entire universe. He's 
my father now, not the father of lies. So I've been homeschooled in the wrong home for, let's say, 23 years of my life. And then when I was 23, that's when I became saved, when the Lord has brought me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, there were things that were happening in my life that I did not understand, whether it be physical, physical manifestations. Let's say it's a a headache. Let's say it's knee pain. Let's say it's back pain. You know, now all these are tools that the enemy can use to get to my soul, my psyche, and start bringing me out of the thought of the kingdom of God, that kingdom mindset, the mind of Christ into his kingdom. Uh, On top of that, I would be seeing why things were happening prior to, you know, with my relationship with my parents, like what was going on and, and what I was struggling with. And I started realizing through all of this, like all this was not, let's say, uh, demonic possession, but demonic oppression. That oppressive spirit, let's say it's a spirit of fear. We know that the Lord doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but all of a sudden I was becoming fearful. And that fearfulness would lead to even health concerns. So the enemy was trying to attack all from all angles. Once I became a Christian, He knew what buttons to push to get to me. But the more I developed an understanding of this idea of spiritual warfare and what was actually going on in the spirit, I started realizing what the blood of Jesus had done for me and what it really freed me from. And this is really what the book's about. It's actually walking in the freedom that the gospel has given you. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, getting you into the kingdom of God. And then you've got the gospel of the kingdom that frees your mind and frees you for what you've been created for. You've been created for his image, in his image, in his likeness, so that you also can take the ministry that Jesus had and destroy hell for a living. Because Jesus came, he humbled himself, and he came as a man. And he destroyed the works of the devil. And we are to destroy those same works. And I didn't know this. You know, I thought it was a ticket to get to heaven. Okay, here we go. I became a Christian. Just take me off this planet. Wrong. I have a mission. There's a purpose. And there's a plan for my life. And it's about getting intimate with the Lord and knowing what that plan is. So, I then realized that I was actually under this oppression, these chains, and I had buttons in my life that can get pushed and issues. But the closer I got to him in intimacy, those buttons started vanishing. So the enemy couldn't touch me and push those buttons because they didn't exist anymore. And the issues that I had, let's say past issues with friends or family, those were also vanishing. So then, literally, he did cancel my subscription to issues. He removed all of my buttons. I'm not a chicken anymore, so my, my feathers won't get ruffled. All of those were lies that I was believing. And all of them were tools that the enemy was using. Those fiery arrows that get shot at you to try to take you out. Now, With that being said, we've got Debbie Simpson on the line. 
and she is going to be walking you through this chapter of spiritual warfare, some of the expectations, some of the things that go into it. I know that uh, she is really good when it comes to understanding spiritual warfare and some of the things and through the course of her walk with this. Uh, Debbie, you there? I am. All right. Uh, by all means, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Feel free to take it away. Thank you, Adam. Yes, um, this chapter on spiritual warfare is a chapter that highlights the reality of the truth that there is perpetual ongoing spiritual war that is and has always been in existence for mankind since creation. Adam and Eve were the first to fall, and this war has been ongoing ever since. As the um, chapter discusses, for those who have read it and gone through it, it really establishes how we have been positioned for victory. But as sons of Adam, people, humans, we reside in either one of three camps. And so this is the reality that if we understand this, it helps us to look at our lives and lives of those around us to make sense. It helps us to, to see how the reality of what we're living reconciles with the word of God. And so really to set the stage for what I'm going to be discussing today, I'm going to be touching on some of the reasons why when we do spiritual war, it appears as if we fail. It appears as if everything that we've taught and has been taught through the scriptures up until now really it might be true, but it doesn't work at best. At worst, it's really not true at all. And I want to address some superseding factors that might be in play that are causing our reality to be in conflict, really, with what the Word of God states it should be. So we are either in one of three camps. The unsaved are captives. They are held prisoner. Isaiah 61 is God's cry of hope to them. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. So we are either captives. You're not saved, you're captive. Now think in the natural realm. You're, you're fighting for your country and you're taken captive and now you have become a prisoner of war. A prisoner of war is a believer they are believers, soldiers in God's army who have been apprehended and held captive, though they do not need to be. We see this truth revealed in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21 and 25. The horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. That's verse 21. 25 states that the um, little horn, he will speak out against the Most High and he will wear down the saints of the highest one. Okay? So they have some believers who are prisoners of war. This is the truth of it, and it is their reality, though they don't need to be. Okay? Or they are the overcomers of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. That being said, I'd like to note, however, that it is important to note that the grammatical connotation of his letters to the churches is that if-then type of a structure. Jesus' exhortation to overcome is the warning that some will not. 
And we need to recognize that and be aware. If a believer lacks understanding in his identity, authority, or the power of his words, or if his perception has been darkened through deception, then his position before God and his purpose in his hometown, the kingdom of God, will be underestimated, resulting in stunted spiritual growth and an inability to mature to full stature. And for this reason, he will suffer loss when confronted by the enemy. And that's why so many believers see the suffering of loss, and it causes them to come to a belief system that is in error. For this reason, he'll be unable to walk in the equipping that he's unaware he possesses. The spiritual reality of a believer's conversion experience mirrors the physical picture of the Israelites' entrance into the land of Canaan. We see recorded in Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist's instructions to those who would choose to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, bring forth fruit, meet with, or in keeping with, or bearing witness to the truth of your repentance. We've talked about repentance. This changing how we think, this repentance, thinking, changing how we think, results in obedience to the word of God. As we first saw with Eve in the garden, then with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and finally with believers at their point of decision for Christ, obedience to God's word is the front line of the battlefield, and the decisions made will dictate either victory or defeat. This needs to be understood. Obedience to God's word is the front line of the battlefield, and the decisions made will dictate either victory or defeat. I would submit to you that the majority of believers see only defeat. This is the reason for their belief system. But rather than believing that what's been taught with regards to identity and authority is wrong, the what I want to investigate today is maybe rather than it being wrong, there's a reason these things aren't manifesting in the lives of believers. And the foundational reason is there are areas in our lives where we're walking in disobedience. And that's why when you can do spiritual war, you experience defeat on the battlefield. It's not because the word of God is wrong. It's because the word of God is being instituted in your life. And there are portions of God's word that have been lost in the devastations and the desolations of generations. So they're not part of the thought process. They're not part of the paradigm, not part of the understanding. They're not part of the equation causing us to fall to misunderstanding. All right. So what we see in the beginning of this chapter on warfare you know, it, it, it is pointed out that the Israelites were admonished to remember all the commands that the Lord God had given them. The key word in this verse is all, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. It means all. Upon entering the land, the people were, care, were to be careful to keep all of the commands that God was commanding them to do. And we've, we've woven this throughout the 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 discussions the word keep 
Shamar, it means to keep safe, to preserve, to preserve, to guard, to attend to, and exercise great care over and give careful attention to all of the commands of God. This is what we agree to when we're coming into covenant. This is the covenant agreement. Unfortunately, no one read the fine print. And now the fine print is biting us in the butt. The result of keeping God's word or obedience pictures spiritual walls being built up in the lives of believers. The consequences of walking in disobedience is more than just a sinful walk and disappointing God, though there is that. In addition, it's destruction. It's why the fervent prayer of a righteous man does not avail us much. Okay? The enemy will not pass the opportunity to kill, steal, and destroy, for it is his, it is his mission to bring God's people to ruin. We saw this with even the garden. Ignorance of, unbelief in, or distaste for the spiritual battle that he is in will not exempt the believer from the reality of its existence nor the repercussions that bring ruin. See, that's the broken wall that this whole, this, this whole first section of the book is talking about. This is what God is doing. He's rebuilding the wall. Deuteronomy 8.19 gives sober warning to people of, to the people of God. The book, the Bible was not written to the heathen. It was not written to the unsaved. And when we read scripture and we think, oh, that's for the unbeliever, that's for people who weren't saved, then we are immediately exempting ourselves from the very word that's going to be that which supports us, provides for us, or judges us. So it, the warning to God's people is this. If you do not keep, preserve, guard, carefully attend to, watch carefully over the commands, you will surely perish from the land. We think, well, see, that doesn't apply today. We're all not dying. To perish, by definition, is a fading away of strength, hope, wisdom, knowledge, and wealth, all of which are very applicable to the believers of God today. Perish does not necessarily mean to lose one's life. So, with regards to these things, through progressive revelation, we learn that in addition to Jesus' instructions to the church, okay, believers overcome, as stated in Revelation 12:11. We don't overcome just through this obedience to God's word and the rebuilding of our walls, but we continues with Revelation 12:11 by the blood of the Lamb and by the blood of the lamb and we don't overcome simply by the blood of the lamb. That is the provision. That's the equipping. But if it is not prevailed upon, it remains useless. So the, the people of God, they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. If this concept of spiritual warfare is new to you, then I strongly encourage you to start small because your testimony is what's going to be part of the equation that's going to help you to overcome. Even as children first learn to walk and then run, ride a trike, then a bike, we need to not feel when we go into spiritual warfare for the first time that we need to go into a, a, what we would consider a big battle right off the bat or with our first attempt at this. As we grow into spiritual warfare, 
and see victory here, that becomes our testimony. And we don't want to dive into the deep end before we learn to swim. And then after being saved from drowning, say, see, man was never meant to be in the water. So my exhortation is as you begin to bind the enemy, start off with yourself. Keep it private. Don't advertise this. Go in your own prayer chair. It's between you and the Lord. Okay. What's going on in your own life that you'd like to see deliverance from? Okay. Begin by recognizing that you've got oppression somewhere. Anxiety, depression, fear. Okay. Or you know, perhaps you've got a lingering knee pain or a lingering hip pain. Repenting from any open doors or ledges. I call them beachheads in your life. Ask God, what are my open doors? It'll be different for everyone. So, you know, scripture does give examples. You know, if you don't, if you don't forgive someone, then you're given over to the tormentors. Regards to the money, you know, the, the servant of the king who didn't forgive those that owed him money. So that we see that spiritual truth woven into the reality of, of the realm of man. That when there's unforgiveness, you're turned over to the tormentors. Okay, that's a physical, that's a spiritual reality. I always say where there's garbage, there's rats. If you got garbage in your life, you're going to have rats. If you go into spiritual warfare against the demonic and you are housing them and you're feeding them and you are giving them, you know, sustenance, they're going to, they're going to eat you alive from the inside out. I always say you've got to secure the borders before you storm the bait, the, just before you storm the gates. What is the garbage in your life? Clean out the garbage in your life and then get rid of the rats. How do you do, how do, you do that? You repent. Lord, I'm sorry for unforgiveness. I'm sorry for being offended. I'm sorry for walking in disobedience. I repent of that. As you speak those things, you're closing these doors. You're getting rid of these beachheads that the demonic are standing on. Then you just renounce and reject the stronghold. That's your binding and your loosening, your words. I bind up the enemy that came into my life because I did these sinful things. I've repented of that. I've asked forgiveness of that. And now I'm cleansed for that. And now I'm going to, now you just can't say I'm sorry that I let these demons in of anger, fear, whatever. Now you got to cast them out. Don't say, well, I'm sorry you're here. Then let them stay. So then you renounce, you reject them. You say, I bind you up in the name of Jesus. Get out of my house. Get out of my vessel. Do this every day till it's done. Moses, when he was on the hillside, he kept his arms raised until the enemy was defeated. Don't lower your arms too soon and then call it failure. Then you replace it with words of the kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy. Loosed over your life, kingdom peace. Loosed over your life, the absence of strife, the absence of fear. And do this every day. When you see victory, you'll become a believing believer and no one will be able to dissuade you because you won't be able to deny your own testimony. This pattern of growing up into warfare has been by God, has been set and patterned by God himself through King David. In 1 Samuel 17:36, you know, we read as David was going to stand before Goliath and he was talking to King Saul, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and now this uncircumcised Philistine will be one of them. King David, as the pattern, didn't go after Goliath as his first attempt. He started small and he worked his way up. And it's okay for us to do that. So we see the testimony 
of scripture declaring the progressive nature of the development inherent in growing up to full stature. It is prudent to note the wisdom of starting small and growing up into maturity and warfare. So as um, I want to continue to kind of go off the script of the chapter, which talks about how we have been positioned for victory, I'd like to identify obstacles to overcoming. That are That is factors that may be in play that supersede our purse of deliverance. James 16 states, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's a lot of assumptions for believers that their prayer is effectual and fervent and that they are righteous men. But their prayers are not availing much, unless, of course, you say that whatever is resulting in your life must have been the sovereign will of God. And so, so the destruction remains in place because God's allowing this for some purpose. Then it's availing much. <laughs> but that would be an understanding that is in error. So we, I, would, I would submit to you that all believers are praying fervently, fervently, but effectual. An effect, what makes a prayer effectual? Effectual prayer is prayers that reflect a believer's belief in his authority, his identity, and the power of his words, and he's instituting them. Okay? So the, um, the righteous man, the prayer of the righteous man, would be what defines righteous. Righteousness consists of obedience to God's laws to the degree that one's character exhibits conformity to God's nature. If this isn't the believer who's praying, then he's not the righteous man. He's a good man, you know, but he doesn't, he, he, he's, his walls are down, and this is something that is going to be a compromising factor when he goes to his prayer chamber. Righteousness, again, consists of obedience to God's laws to the degree that one's character exhibits conformity to God's nature. This is only attainable if you're functioning from the identity and the authority that you've been given, which is the definition of operating in truth. Truth is defined as conformity to the divine nature. We studied that. He desires true worshipers to worship him, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Truth, definition, those and that which is in conformity with the divine nature. That is truth. All right. Therefore, that is defined as being righteous. It comes full circle. It comes full circle. I'm going to repeat that. Righteousness consists of obedience to God's laws to the degree that one's character exhibits conformity to God's nature. That's your, that is your definition. That's undebatable. This is only attained. You are only conforming to God's nature. You can only attain this if you're functioning from the position that he has placed you in your authority, in your identity that you've been given. Therefore, by definition, you're operating in truth, which in by definition is in conformity to the nature of God, which in by definition is being righteous. So this would be something would certainly be a compromising factor that's influencing the effectualness of this fervent prayer. Okay. And then um, 
The other thing that I wanted to talk about that would affect the effectiveness of your prayer is the fact that, you know, God, God will judge, right? So, um, you see here, we know that God will be judge. So God establishes requirements for himself as well as for his people. And he establishes these requirements in addition for his kingdom. We talked about the kingdom of God is a kingdom with a government, with a government, and this government executes jurisdiction, right? God not only will act as judge, but he will execute judgment as well. As judge, he will rule and deliver justice. By definition, the word just justice includes the idea of uprightness and equity and carries with it the idea of governance in its totality, executive, legislative, and judicial. God himself establishes the law. He judges over the execution of the law, whether it's kept, resulting in blessing, broken, resulting in cursing, and finally he renders a judgment or consequence. You know, take this back. Do Are we keeping covenant? He's going to judge. We talked about it in Deuteronomy. If you obey, your walls are rebuilt. You have blessing, freedom from the molestation of your enemy, salvation. If you disobey, you fall prey. So that these are the consequences that have been woven in as spiritual laws into the spiritual kingdom that we are now citizens of and operating under and in subjection to. Not knowing the laws are not going to exempt us from their execution over us. I may not know that the speed limit is 65, but if I'm going 70, that doesn't exempt me. I can't say to the officer, gee, I didn't know, right? So um, always God's judgment are fair and impartial. He operates in equity. God's judgment targets unrighteousness and ungodliness in men, regardless where it's found, whether in his own people or in or in the unsaved. Romans 1.18 says that on account of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, grieve, greed, which amounts to idolatry, the wrath of God will come. Right? Note the audience here. This is believers. All right? These letters are not intended for the unsaved. They're intended for God's own people. We also note that judgment begins in the household of God. God will judge his people. God judges the unrighteousness and ungodliness in people. It results in refining, purifying, that they may be presented as a holy and blameless before him. It serves a purpose, a godly purpose. You know, it says in John 15, 22, <clears throat> if I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for the sin. People of God are held accountable by virtue of their knowledge. All right? And the word of God is the rule book. God is constrained by his own character to conform to the requirements of covenant. That's what's going on here. This is a superseding factor that I'm trying to get to. He's constrained by his own character to conform to the requirements of covenant. His people are constrained by the laws of the covenant. 
God is ruler, judge, and jury, and his wrath will be appeased against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, regardless where it is found, in all cases, at all times. God stays true to his character. It is God's people's choice whether to conform to this or not. So that is a long way of saying that this is another thing that we need to understand. If we are housing unrighteousness in our vessel, that is going to be a factor that comes into play when we're looking to God to execute on our behalf the request that we're making before him. God will judge the wickedness in his people. We see this clearly in Amos 3.10. It says this, but this is God, and he's talking to his people, right? He says to, to Jerusalem, but they do not know how to do what is right declares the Lord. This is God's people today. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Physical picture, spiritual truth. What is this scripture communicating? What's a citadel? Citadel is a fortified residence of the king. Think believer. You are the residence of the king. You're the temple. You're fortified with the blood of Christ, the spirit of God. You are fortified residents of the king. What's going on in this fortified residence? Well, they're hoarding violence. Well, what's violence? Well, geez, I don't take a knife and stab people. I don't have a gun and shoot people. That's our definition of violence. So we think, oh, this isn't us. What does God's definition of violence look like? This is God's definition. Violence. It's synonymous with an improper sacrifice. Ouch, that hurts. Or a sacrifice of inferior quality. Okay, it references those who know the truth and reject it. You know, someone who doesn't know the truth of God cannot be violent in this sense. They can't reject what they do not know. But we've been given the word of God and we've been required to know it. Those who knowingly live in sin. So we're talking about believers who are holding up violence. Why? Because they allow obedience and disobedience to coexist. If you're doing any of this, which I would submit, submit to you every believer operates in this to one degree or another. We hoard up violence in our citadels. We qualify. We qualify. So what is, th therefore, we go to God, repent. We go to our prayer chair. This is what this whole thing is about, intimacy. Lord, where am I hoarding up violence? Where are my sacrifices improper? Where are they inappropriate? You know, where am I walking in sin and I don't know it? This is why that, Oracle is so important. God will reveal these things to us. So um, our own inferior walk may be a superseding factor that causes our prayers of deliverance to be blocked. Okay? Along with not being the righteous man who, who's living in accordance with the divine nature. So we get kind of a twofold picture here. All right? What could be a superseding factor? We need to get rid of bad that's already there, and we need to continue to add to the good that God is showing us. We can't have a mixed bag to allow obedience and disobedience to coexist would be to be hoarding up violence. These are the issues. What's the remedy? Repentance. Cleaning house. Again, Old Testament, physical picture, spiritual truth. If you read the book of Judges, chapter 1. As you know, the, the, the Israelites were entering into the promised land and they were told to expel the enemy from the camp. But you know what they found? The enemy could be very useful. They used these Canaanites. Some were hewers of, of stone. Some were choppers of wood. 
Some were carriers of water, and they allowed the enemy to coexist in the camp and serve them. That's chapter 1. When, and what do we see at the end of chapter 1? That the enemy, the Canaanites, they lived among the Israelites. That doesn't sound too bad. Now let's look at chapter 3. Thus, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. The enemy came up and overwhelmed, consumed, and overspread. And next thing you know, that which was allowed to remain in the camp, because in one way or another it served them, became the master. And the tables were turned. And the believers, we do that. And that's what we were talking about. When we come into our walk, we have to expel the, 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 the enemy that's already in the camp. And if we don't get rid of the sin that is already there, then that's what's going to be the downfall as we continue our walk of salvation. And that's going to be a problem when we go to war. Imagine going to war against the oncoming onslaught of Philistines when you've got a tribe of Philistines living in the house next door. What's going to happen to your backside when you're fighting your front, the, front, the front line? And that's the spiritual reality of believers today who are allowing the enemy to remain in the camp. <clears throat> and then they go to war. They suffer loss and defeat. And they say, see, this was never supposed to be part of our lives. But what they're missing is they didn't clean house. They didn't secure the borders before they stormed the gates. Again, as has been the mantra of this study, the issue is overcoming, but it's not for ourselves. It's for our king, first and foremost. Think in the natural. Warriors don't go to battle for self-glorification. Anyone familiar with the movie or the book Narnia? You know, just prior to storming the hillside to meet the onslaught of the coming enemy, King Peter looks at his valiant, most trusted warrior, and he, he declares to the death, and his valiant warrior looks at him and he says, to the death, immovable, unshakable, all right, firm. And as they go down the hillside, the war cry is released for Aslan. Aslan was the Jesus figure, the king of kings, the lord of lords. They stormed the hillside to the death for Aslan, for Jesus. Okay? Warriors in battle submit their lives to their king, yet all the blessings attained through victory fall upon the citizens of the realm for personal enjoyment. This is not the reason they go to battle, but it is certainly a natural outcome. And if that helps to bring a little bit of clarity and understanding as to why we're seeing the reality staring us in the face and they're not lining up with the truths that scripture you know, reveals is the potential. These are some reasons that we may not be seeing the effectual part come into play when our prayers are fervently lifted, lifted to heaven. So we just go to our prayer care. Again, go to the Lord. Ask him. When, when I started this and I wasn't seeing victory and I wasn't seeing the manifestation, the first thing I didn't say was, gee, this must be wrong. I went to the Lord every day for years. <laughs> what is it, Lord? I don't know. I don't know. Because your, your word stands true. May every man be a liar, but your word will stand true. 
what is it I don't know I don't know because this truth of your word is not manifesting in my life so the, the breakdown has to be on my end because it cannot be on yours and God grew me up <clears throat> into biblical truth so that's really what I had to share Adam with regards to that the chapter itself does a great job giving biblical foundation for our positioning as citizen king as kingdom citizens and as believers for victory but what i wanted to touch on was you know why if this isn't happening are some things that we could be looking at that might be game changers for us no that was really good um very informative and i can tell you Without a doubt, some of the things that I was struggling with, um, I, and I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was 24 years old, I was fresh off of becoming a Christian. And because I, I was a teacher, I had the entire summer to just be alone with him. But I would wake up, let's say, on a full night's sleep. We're looking at, um, man, probably like a 10 hours worth of sleep. And then I'm thinking, okay, this is awesome. I get up, wake up at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I get my Bible out. And I'm starting to, to read it. And I fall asleep instantly. Yet I can watch ESPN at that time for countless hours. And then finally someone uh, explained to me, they said, what if it's a demon of sleep? And I, I thought about that for just a second, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that sounds right. So what did I do? I said, okay, I didn't know how to do this, and I was just like, in Jesus' name, you know, spirit of sleep, I rebuke you, or whatever, you know, spirit of sleep, leave. I don't know what I said, but what I did tell, I said, you know what, in Jesus' name, spirit of sleep, you need to leave now. And then all of a sudden, I felt something it was strange kind of awkward. And I'm like, whoa, what was that? And then here I am, I opened up the Bible and I could read it for hours. Never fell asleep. And the thing though, is it tried coming back and I kicked it back out again because the spirit thinks that it's his house. And although there was a time when that house was, let's say, under siege with, with him and it was housing him, it's not that anymore. He's been evicted. He's been kicked out and he needs to stay kicked out. And that's just one of many testimonies. Now, as far as ministering to others, you know, the key, though, is what Jesus said. You know, I know that what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 14, now this is after this man was healed. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. How important is it that, I mean, just hearing sin no more, there's so many Christians out there, they're like, whoa, I am a sinner. I'm always going to sin. I'm a failure. I'm imperfect. Um, I mean, mistakes, I'm, I'm always going to make mistakes, right? And here's Jesus saying, no, sin no more or else these, these things will happen to you. And that's a big deal because what that's saying is you need to be in a position in a position, in a place where you are 
have your walls up, where you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're not going to do those things anymore. You're not going to welcome them in like a Trojan horse and then get crushed from the inside out. You know, because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, it says, and do not give the devil a foothold. And that talks about, you know, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun set upon your anger. So now all of a sudden, we have to realize that we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility um, to understanding God's word, but then to live God's word out. And that's our testimony. By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, which is what Debbie was saying. And it's so important because you've got to realize that you are a spiritual house. You, and picture it, like you are a temple of God. Now you can fill that temple with things that are not of God and pollute it and corrupt it. And then eventually it's going to destroy you. It's just like what you had Solomon. He was welcoming in different people that he was told not to from other countries. This is opposite of what God wants. It's the same thing. These are foreigners that were came in, and the next thing you know, now we have an issue. Now we have a problem. So when we become a Christian, we have to realize that this process of, let's say, expelling these things in our lives, that needs to happen. It's, a, it's part of the chains being broken. I remember the Lord even gave me a vision of me kind of floating. It was weird. All right. I was like, but I kept floating and I was like kind of lying on my back and I kept rising up in the sky. And all of a sudden I had these chains that were around me, keeping me from getting closer to the Lord, keeping me from intimacy with him. And I'm like, Lord, you need to free me of these chains. And he said, I already have. You're still holding on to them. And it hit me. I'm, oh my gosh, what chains am I still holding on to? What bondage am I still holding on to that is actually contradicting what Scripture says? That is, I'm doing the opposite of what Scripture is saying. Therefore, I'm outside the camp and I'm getting trampled. I'm outside of my protection and I'm getting hit. If we stay in Christ, the enemy can't touch us. And, and that's why it's about freeing those people that are caught up into those things. You know, I, and I can tell you there's people I've been ministering to, I get a word of, let's say, abuse or a word of even a person's name. Let's say it's like Jennifer. And I look, hey, does Jennifer ring a bell? And the people start with eyes wide open, how do you know that name? And it was a relationship that they had that was actually affecting who they are in Christ. It was getting them outside of the camp. The enemy would hit them pretty hard, and there was a lot of unforgiveness there that needed to be dealt with. And then at that point, which is exactly what Debbie was saying, is now all of a sudden, just mentioning the name Jennifer exposed, let's say, a stronghold in that person's life or a spot where the enemy can rest on and perch on. Well, if you remove the perch, the enemy can't perch there anymore. There's nothing to perch on. It's just like the whole button thing. There's no buttons that the enemy can push anymore. So anyways, those are some of the things as far as spiritual warfare goes. And it's extensive. I mean, you've got books on uh -huh, books on spiritual warfare. And the one thing that I can tell you is 
Um, always you're going to the Father. You're building a relationship with Him, and you're asking Him about the situation. All right? That's the best thing I can tell you because the Holy Spirit, you may think, oh, I'm going to do this approach, or I'm going to do this approach, or I'm going to do this approach, and the Holy Spirit's just kind of like, you know what? There, that's man's way. That's not the way I want to do it. You know, Jesus never healed the same way twice that we see in Scripture. So he was constantly keeping in step with the Spirit. We're not doing things, remember, remember, remember. We're not doing things for the Lord. We're doing it with the Lord. And to do this, you need to be doing it with the Lord. Because let's say you go into battle without preparing for the lion with the lion and the bear that David did, or you go into battle and your armor, there's a chink in your armor that you may not know. Now all of a sudden the enemy sees that and it's like a bullseye. He's like, okay, you're attacking that and you're attacking him here and you're attacking him there because those are weaknesses that I see in him. Now, if you go into battle and you're fully armed, well, now, now, now this is good. Now, I know, the, I know this from experience because I went into some battles I shouldn't have, and I got beat up pretty bad, and I had to go back to the Lord, and the Lord's like, I, I didn't tell you to do that. It's like, you didn't even do it the way I wanted to do it. You know, praise the Lord for his mercy and his grace. So, with that being said, though, um, we're running out of time. We went, went over a little bit, but it's good because this is a, a big topic. Um, that does need to get covered. Um, with that being said, Debbie, do you have anything? Um, nope, I'm good, Adam. Okay, uh, awesome. Well, anyways, that's it for today's uh, show. Uh, we are going to be the last chapter. We're moving into the final chapter. Uh, one of my favorites, spiritual mindedness. Spiritual mindedness on the next show.